Second Kings chapter 17, and we left off in verse 13 last week, and we looked at three verbs in that passage, turn, keep, and sent, as they pertain to how God had used the prophets and the seers to warn his people to turn from their evil ways and to keep his commandments and statutes which were given to them by the prophets and seers. God said, obey them. You remember what, uh, what God said about the Lord Jesus to the disciples? He said, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. Listen to him. He's the one I sent. Well, that's, that goes for the prophets and the seers too. God said, hear ye them. What did the rich, or what did Abraham say to that rich man that died and lifted up his eyes in torment in hell? And he said, if only one could go to my brothers and keep them from coming to this awful place. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. They're the ones who were sent. The same people to whom, or about whom God is instructing these Israelites to pay attention. Now, we established there, the Bible did, that God has given the, his authority to command his chosen men and to tell them what to say and that we're to obey them just as quickly as if God himself were standing here in visible presence. Now, some men the charlatans, the wicked, the, the wolves of this world have taken that to a different level. They've convinced their followers that if I speak, God is speaking, but they're not speaking God's word. That's how a cult gets developed. And do you know, I'm going to give you, a, it's not a secret, but it's the key to cult prevention. This is cult prevention 101. Get to know this right here. That'll keep you away from the cult. Because you'll do like the Bereans did and for which Paul commended them, by the way, when somebody preaches something, he said they search the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. That's what you'll do. You'll look in here and you'll say, that's not in there. Or, yeah, it is in there. I'm going to do it. So that's where we were with the children of Israel. They weren't doing what the prophets told them, and the prophets were telling them what God said. So they weren't doing what God told them to do. Now let's look in verse 14. 2 Kings 17, verse 14, the new part of our study this morning. Notwithstanding, they would not hear, but hardened their necks like to the neck of their fathers that did not believe in the Lord their God. Now the word notwithstanding is not one we use too much, but we do use the words, however, and nevertheless. And that's what that means. Or we might even say, in spite of all that I did for you, here's how you thanked me. You thanked me with disobedience. And that's what is being communicated here. Verse 13 told us what God did for them. Verse 14 told us what they didn't do for God. They didn't obey him. That was their response. And so what... The word notwithstanding implies to us here is that God went to great effort to warn his people. 
You know, it was enough that he commanded Moses and the children of Israel not to do the things that Israel was now doing, to worship idols and fear other gods and so forth. I mean, Judah and Israel already had those commandments. It wasn't necessary that God send prophet after prophet, seer after seer, when he had given them once and for all that law in the Old Testament, in Moses' day. In fact, after that, it was enough that God sent one prophet or seer to warn them. But he sent many. He sent prophets. He sent seers. And after all that, or in spite of all that, the text says, they would not hear. And we're going to spend a few moments on that. They would not hear. They, meaning the children of Israel. The ones whom God delivered over and over from the hands of their enemies. He showed them his mercy. These are the ones whom God over and over delivered into the hands of their enemies as he showed his judgment. Because they had not obeyed him. Now listen, when you forget where you came from. And who delivered you, then this is what happens right here. What's happening to Israel. It's not any different. So don't think, well, that was the Old Testament. That's Old Testament stuff there. Right. And it's New Testament stuff too. And it's today's stuff too. God's ways never do change. His, his laws are the same. And three days after the children of Israel had been delivered from Egypt there in Exodus chapter 15, they murmured because the waters of Marah were bitter. And so God heard that murmuring. And rather than saying, well, that's it. You've been out here three days and you're already murmuring. You're already failing to recognize that I provide all your needs. And I can bring sweat water out of a bitter fountain if I want to. You're murmuring. And instead of judging them right there, sending them back to Egypt, saying, if that's where you want to go, go, go back. God was merciful, and he told Moses to cast a tree into those bitter waters to make them sweet. And in the 16th chapter of Exodus, about 45 days after Israel was delivered from Egypt, the people murmured again. They murmured against their deliverer because they were hungry. And so God, rather than wiping them off the face of the earth, gave them quail in the evening and manna in the morning. He filled their bellies full of food. And throughout their wilderness journey, the children of Israel murmured, and then God would show himself gracious and merciful by meeting their needs. And then they were discontented again. I don't know if I stole this from somebody, but I've known it for so long. And that is a saying that I have about entitlement. Entitlement breeds resentment. It does not breed gratitude. So if you ever think, well, if, 
if our government or me, if we'll just hand stuff out to people all the time, at some point they'll begin to thank us. No, they won't. They'll begin to resent you because the day you cut them off, the day you don't give them more than what they're asking for, they resent you. That resentment is what builds up. And that's what happened here. You would think the children of Israel would look back and say, our fathers were in bondage for 400 years in a Gentile land, and God has delivered us out. And even if we have to stay in a tent out under the stars and eat manna and quail, and that's all we get, and sweet water out of a bitter fountain, we're going to be thankful that we're not in bondage again. That's not what they did. They got bitter. They resented the fact that they were hungry. And all of their discontentment sprang from matters of the flesh. Did you ever notice that? They sprang from matters of the flesh. They never did complain that Moses wasn't expounding God's word to them. They never did say, well, we have uh, a problem here with uh, having enough time to learn God's word. It seems that our work day is too long. You didn't ever hear them complain about that. You heard them complain about carnal things, usually hunger and thirst. And Jesus told the, the people there in Matthew, he said, that's, that's the kind of thing the Gentiles worry about. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But the flesh says, let's worry about hunger and thirst rather than seeking God's face. And you know the majority of people today, and that's in the church and out of the church, are concerned about mostly carnal things. It's true. And if it applies to you, then learn from it. Don't be upset. Just learn from it and say, you know what? I hadn't thought of that. That, that is me. I have been doing that in this area or that area. And let God's word correct you. You know, one of the things I've learned from, of all places, one of the things I've learned from Facebook is what is in the hearts of most people. You know why? Because they type it. I mean, they just lay it out there. And so uh, Facebook is a huge database that we didn't used to have before social media. All you knew before social media is what the person next to you thought and what somebody said in the newspaper and maybe what somebody said on the, the news. And, of course, CNN changed all that when Ted Turner made a 24-hour news network about, what was it, 30, 40 years ago. And then it was just news all the time. You got beat to death with it. Well, Facebook is a format that people have used to publicly reveal what's in their hearts, through the words they write, the concerns they have, the pictures or photographs or movies they display, the things they like and share, and, and how they treat each other in the comments that they write. That's where you really see how mean people can be. And it seems to be more the case with not all, but many women, I know of two or three, just uh, either in the extended family or friends of the family. And these women are married. 
and they post more selfies than I ever seen in my life, and and they're glamour shots too. Boy, they want everybody to see how beautiful they are, and that's what they're doing. They're fishing for compliments. Post that beautiful glamour shot, and these people put, "Oh, you're so beautiful, you're so beautiful, you're so lovely," and all that. Well, that's like getting a paycheck, isn't it? And so you look a couple days later, and there'll be another one right there. And another one, and it just goes on and on. Now, I like being able to see pictures of my kids and grandkids, mostly my grandkids, on there and and see what they're doing and all that. But uh, people use it for different reasons. But those are carnal-type things that people argue about on there, isn't it? And it's if it's taken to that extreme, it's kind of a sad life, really, when a person has to use comments from people, some of whom they don't even know, to validate their self-worth on social media. But then there are a few people who post who are spiritually minded. And... You know what happens to them within about two or three comments? They start getting mocked and ridiculed and called narrow-minded, all the same things that Jesus told us would happen. It's no surprise. We use Facebook to promote the gospel, to archive the messages and the lessons we teach, and then to communicate with our online members and our visitors. And some of you post some wonderful things on there. And always remember, when you hit the send button, you can't unsend it. So be sure that that's what you want the world to read. Because it's a testimony about you. It's a testimony about your family and about your church. Do you know the children of Israel then and most people today have, have pushed God aside because they're too concerned about carnal matters. And they, they will not hear God's word. That's what happens when you get wrapped up in the flesh. You will not hear God's word. I want you to notice the part of the verse there where it says they would not hear. Would not hear. That phrase is the key. Would not hear. In fact, the words in this verse, the words would and the word hear are the same Hebrew word. That's Uh, strange to me, but that's what it is. And that arrangement teaches us that when we don't hear God's word, it's because we would not hear God's word. Isn't that cool? When When we don't hear God's word, it's because we would not. It's not because we could not. And we're going to look at that for a moment. Because if a person said they could not hear God's word, then they would be laying the groundwork for finding themselves not guilty for disobeying God's word. Have you ever heard that cliche, I guess I didn't get the memo? I bet you've heard that before, haven't you? It's something an employee might say if an order had been passed down by the boss, but the employee wasn't aware of it. And in that case, the employee has a defense to the charge of insubordination. He could say, if I didn't get the memo, that means I didn't hear the order. I couldn't have heard the order. Well, God doesn't leave people that excuse. 
Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That word hold means to suppress. They keep it down. They don't want anything to do with it. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, just like the children of Israel here, they weren't thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. That verse to me seems very clear. That which may be known of God or about God has been shown to those people by God. And their disobedience to hymns without excuse. They would not hear. They had Moses, they had the prophets and the seers. They couldn't say we didn't know because they did. They couldn't say, well, you know, my, my father taught me this here. Well, what did God's word say? You had God's word. What did it say? Now look back in the text there in verse 14. It says, they would not hear but hardened their necks. Let's look at that phrase for a moment. That the words for harden their necks are also translated as stiff-necked or as just the word hard. And you can either hear God's word or you can harden your neck to it. One of two. You can't say, well, I'm neutral. I really don't have an opinion. If you're neutral, what you're saying by implication is that you don't hear God's word. So you're not neutral. If you don't hear God's word, your neck is hardened. Now, that's the, that's the only way to look at God's word when it comes to your obedience of it. I'm either going to obey it or I'm going to harden my neck against it. Now, if you'll just come to terms with that, you won't think there's a, another gear you can drive in where it's, you're just neutral saying, I'm not going forward or backward, Lord. I'm not really disobeying you, but I know I'm not doing what you told me to do. That's disobedience. That's hardening your neck to God's word. Now, what happens when you harden your neck? Well, here's the answer. Let's answer it, first of all, by seeing what is the opposite of a hardened neck. What's the opposite of a hardened neck? Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. Proverbs 3, verses 3 through 4. We studied this on Wednesday night. I hope you didn't miss it, but if you did, you can go back and listen to it. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So, in other words, by doing this, shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. 
Now, a hard-necked person doesn't have favor and good understanding of God in the sight of man because that hard-necked person doesn't have truth and mercy around his neck. Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 48, verse 1. Isaiah 48, verse 1. And listen for the word neck in the words before it that described this person or this nation's condition. Hear ye this, O house of Jacob. Now, Isaiah is writing to the house of Jacob, meaning all of Israel. Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth. Not in righteousness. And then you skip down to verse 4 in that same passage. God said, Because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy brow brass. Not in truth, thy neck is an iron sinew. In other words, it's stiff. What's iron? You don't move iron, do you? You got to heat it up pretty good to get it to bend or break. But just a piece of iron, you're not going to bend that. It's stiff. And somebody who does not have truth around their neck, someone who mentions the God of Israel but not in truth or in righteousness, that person has a neck that is hardened. A hardened neck does not have truth. It does not have righteousness, and it does not have mercy around it. Because truth is what a wise man will seek. Truth is wisdom. And you can't have wisdom without truth. Mercy is an attribute of God, which we understand by understanding his truth. How do we understand mercy? We understand it by looking at the truth of God's word. And when it's around your neck, you're led by it, aren't you? What do you do to lead a dog? You put a leash or a harness around his neck to lead that dog where you want him to go. And when mercy and truth and righteousness are bound around your neck, you're led by it. Just like an ox is led by the pull of the yoke. And without truth, you cannot have righteousness around your neck. So people who mention the God of Israel, who's the same as our God, there's only one God, but not in truth, not in righteousness, they say, oh, I believe in God. I just don't believe what you narrow-minded Christians say about there being just one way to be accepted by him. Well, they've thrown off that yoke of righteousness. They don't want anything to do with it. Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. Jesus wrote or said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Now he just gave you something to put around your neck, didn't he? For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Now, a hardened neck will not submit to the easy but righteous yoke of Jesus Christ. That hardened neck would rather struggle in the yoke of bondage 
Therefore, his neck is hardened. Now, those who would rather be led by the yoke of bondage ought to consider what Jesus said about his yoke being easy. And the word easy there in that Matthew chapter 11 passage does not mean carefree or simple or I can just lay down and do what I want. That's not easy. It's not like the easy chair that we sit in on Sunday afternoon to take our nap. The word easy here, as it describes the yoke that Jesus invited us into, that word easy means kind. It means gracious. Listen for the word gracious in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It's the same word. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, where Peter said, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes, now that'd be a Christian, desire the sincere, sincere milk of the word. That's what we do over here in our Genesis to Jesus class. That ye may grow thereby. That's what we expect when people go through the Genesis to Jesus class. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, that the Lord is easy. See, it's a different way that we think of the word easy today than it was in those days. Gracious is the same word as easy in the Matthew chapter 11 verse. In fact, that verse could be translated this way. For my yoke is gracious and my burden is light. Well, how'd you like that to be in a yoke led by grace? Grace pulling the reins on it. That's an easy yoke. And in that yoke, there is no malice. There is no guile. There's no hypocrisy or evil speaking or envy. There's only grace. Because the Lord is gracious to those who are in his yoke. Notice also about that passage in Matthew 11, where Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Now that's a gracious offering right there, isn't it? Take my yoke upon you. And what people don't realize, many don't, is that they're already under a yoke. And that's the yoke of bondage. In fact... Ezekiel chapter 34 through 20, uh, verse 27, Ezekiel 34, verse 27, God was prophesying about how he would one day deliver Israel, the Israel of God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said through this prophet, and the tree of the field shall yield her fruit and the earth shall yield her increase and they shall be safe in their land and shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them out of the hand of those that serve themselves of them. So what does that tell us about Israel? God is going to break the yoke off of these people. That means they have one on, doesn't it? And it's one that's not pleasing to him. It's one that's not good for them. So already being under a yoke, God is one day going to remove that yoke and then he's going to put his on them. Whereas the yoke of bondage was burdensome, it was grievous, it was full of envy and evil speaking and malice and lies and all of that. 
He's going to bust it off of the person who becomes a believer because that's who the, he's talking about. Not just the nation Israel, the race of Jews, but the Israel of God to which you and I also belong because we're saved. And he's going to put his gracious yoke on them as their deliverer. And the one who has his neck hardened says, well, I'm free of a yoke. I'm a free man. I can do what I want. He's actually in the yoke of bondage, and he will never be free as long as he stays there. That's a sad thing when somebody doesn't realize they're in bondage. I've read obituaries. Y'all know I love to read obituaries. I learned so much about people and what people say about them and what it is that people think about how they're going to spend eternity, and it's sad. Most of the time, it's sad. Brother Fulton and I were sharing this morning, and he told me that somebody had, had said something about the funeral rest yesterday, and I, not a member, it was somebody who came to it, that they'd never heard the gospel preached at a funeral. And that Jess told them, well, if you hadn't, they ain't doing it right. I love that. Well, that's, that man's growing right there, isn't he? And I don't know if I was supposed to share that, but I just felt led to. I thought that was tremendous. But I've read obituaries that describe the deceased person as a free spirit. And what that phrase often means is the person was lawless and rebellious and wild during their life on this earth. But they were not free spirits. They were imprisoned spirits. Their necks were hardened, just like Israel's neck is in our text. And many of those free spirits die of drug and alcohol overdoses. And it's so sad. They spent their lives running away from an easy yoke that Jesus spoke about. Determined to remain in that yoke of bondage, thinking they were free from a yoke at all. A fatal crash I worked several years ago involved a 51-year-old man who was under the yoke of alcohol and drugs. And he was intoxicated one night, and he convinced two adult women to hop on the motorcycle he was riding. Now, that's three people on a motorcycle, Brother Doug. That's too many. I think one's too many, but three's definitely too many. Tony might turn my sound off if I say that again. <laughs> but one of those women tried to tell that man that he was too intoxicated to drive. And you know what his last words were before they got on that bike? He said, we're just going around the block. That, those were his last words. Well, he never made it around the block. He ran off the highway and into a semi-trailer that was parked in a construction area off the highway. And he died soon after the crash. And his two passengers were seriously injured. And his obituary said this, and I'm not going to say his name. He rode out of this world August 7, 2021. It also said, quote, 
He lived his life his way and unarguably to the fullest. Where he was, fun was sure to follow, end quote. Now, you know obituaries are pretty one-sided. After all, we are a polite society in some areas, and we don't air a person's dirty laundry out in their obituary, and I'm glad we don't. It's not, not necessary to do that. I also don't encourage people to lie in an obituary. You know how long mine needs to be, right? Especially if my inheritance is paying for it. I don't want it very long. Andy Shepard, born this day, died this day. He's a servant of the Lord, and he's gone to be with him. That's all you need to put, and that'll save your money right there. I'm trying to help you out. I'm trying to be a blessing. But you know, uh, the truth is that this man's yoke was not easy. He was not in an easy yoke. And no matter what the words of his or anyone else's obituary say, we need to know about the rigor and the pain of the yoke of bondage. We need to know about it. This man's actions caused his loved ones to grieve. I know because I spoke to them on the phone. He had a son and a daughter who were still minors, and now they're without their father. And I'm not going to speculate much about his spiritual condition, but he didn't ride out of this world into the sunset. He died laying on the ground bleeding to death. And he either lift up his eyes in torment in hell or he went to be with the Lord absent from the body. But what he did not consider when he said we're just going around the block, what he did not consider as he took the illegal drugs and alcohol that he took to make himself intoxicated, just as the children of Israel did not consider in their disobedience to God, is that the yoke you choose affects those around you. As we see in the next few words of our text, look at it, verse 14. It says, but harden their necks like to the necks of their fathers. Like father, like son. And so on throughout the generations. Job chapter 14 verses 1 through 2 Job 14 verses 1 through 2 said, Man that is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. The word trouble there means commotion. It means restlessness. Man is born in the yoke of bondage. He's born into trouble. He's born into restlessness. He has no rest in himself or in this world. And where's the only place the Bible ever offers rest? It's in Jesus. Because when he said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, he said, you'll find rest under your souls. That's the only place you can go. And that rest is eternal. That rest means you're no longer in the yoke of bondage. Your spiritual man has been freed from that. We're just waiting on this old flesh to go and be 
turned into that new glorified body. But you know it's been that way ever since sin entered into the world. Adam was not born in the yoke of bondage. He was made in the image of God. Eve was not born in the yoke of bondage. She was made from Adam's flesh. But Adam and Eve, because of their sin, guaranteed that man would be born in the yoke of bondage. And in spite of that, God had another yoke prepared from the foundation of the world. And that's the one of which his dear son would say, take my yoke upon you. But from Cain through the next man who's born today, the neck of the fathers and the mothers are hardened and their children's are hardened and their children's. And it remains that way if you will not hear. The most important thing you can teach your children is God's word. They need to learn to read and to write and to speak the king's English and whatever other languages they may learn along the way. But they need to learn God's word worse than they need any of that. Guess what? You can teach your children to read by teaching them to read the Bible. They're not mutually exclusive there. So that's the most important thing you can teach your children is God's word. The most important thing you can show your children is that you hear God's word. And what's really neat is that you can teach them that you hear God's word by showing them that you hear God's word. Children can spot a fake. They're pretty good at it. The children's bus ministry has been a feature of many Baptist churches during my lifetime and probably for some of you. And the idea behind it is to Pick up children from their homes, take them to church, and teach them the Bible, and then drop them back off at their homes until the next time you pick them up and take them to church and teach them the Bible. And so what will happen is a parent or maybe grandparent, whoever they're living with, will get them ready for church, send them out the door. Wave to the church bus driver as he drives off, as he hauls their precious cargo to church. Now, what message, I'm going to look at this from another side here. What message did that parent give that child? You might say, oh, they're teaching them that church is important. Or they're putting their children in good hands just like they do when they send them to school. No, here's what they're teaching their children. When I grow up, I won't have to go to church. Church is for kids. Because my parents don't have to go. You see, they have to get up a little earlier, don't they? And get ready and comb their hair and brush their teeth. And here's where it gets even stickier for those children. When they get off the bus and they go into the church, guess who they see? Adults. They see other children's parents at church. And their little minds must be wondering, what are they doing here? My parents don't have to come. Why do these adults have to come? And perhaps the children get home after church and 
walk into the living room with a picture they drew, with a Bible verse they memorized, maybe a prize they got for doing it. And they tell their parents about it, and they're so excited. And the parents say, oh, that's nice. Go get changed into your swim trunks. We're going over to Grandma's to go swimming. There are 168 hours in a, in a week. The children just spent about a half hour on the bus, an hour or two at church, and a half hour on the bus again to go home. And out of those three hours, probably less than an hour was devoted to teaching them about God's Word. So for the remaining 164 hours of the week, probably more honestly the remaining 167 hours of the week, those children learn to harden their necks just like their mother and father. And when they hear God's word, they often turn away from it. Now, if you want to ruffle some feathers on the average Baptist pastor, just make a negative remark about the bus ministry. Brother Fulton and I have been here over 10 years. He's been here over 11. And we have not had the slightest desire to have a bus ministry to go pick up children, separate them from their parents, assume responsibility for their safety and well-being, and then drop them off again. We don't bust children. We evangelize families and disciple them. That's the difference. We love children, as you can tell. We love our own. We love other people's children. The father is the head of the household. The Bible very clearly established that, and he ought to be here, and he ought to be here with his wife, and they ought to be here with their children. The family should learn God's word together. And parents, when they take the family home, should talk about it throughout the week and demonstrate it. If a church bus was going to do anything, it ought to be used to pick up the whole family for church, not just the children. Then you could call it the church family bus, which is a much better use of the vehicle. And tell them, we love your children, but if we're not going to take your children from you. If you don't come with them, they're not coming with us. And I imagine that would, boy, I'd get stuff thrown at me if I said that in the average independent Baptist church. But I'm just speaking from what I believe is a biblical perspective on that. And one more thing I'll tell you about the average church bus ministry. The children's church workers and bus workers I've been around love those children. There is no doubt about that. They have to, to be able to put up with all of that. But they're not usually called into the gospel ministry. They're not gifted in most cases as teachers of God's word. And they had the ones I was around loved the children and they were fine people. But they had no idea how to teach the children the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't know how to teach them the Bible in a way children could understand. And worst of all, many of them tried to lead these little children in that sinner's prayer, which caused them a lifetime of confusion when they got older. And some of you, either in here or online or both, as children were probably in that situation. Now looking back at our text here in verse 14, what was it 
That was the greatest sign of a hardened neck, both in the children of Israel and their fathers before them. Well, if you'll come back next week, we'll, we'll tell you. Our time's up. I'll just love doing that. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for how your word admonishes us, comforts us, reassures us, teaches us, tells us when we're wrong, and affirms us when we're right. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you've shown to all of us through your son, Jesus. And as we go into our next hour of worship, Father, I pray we do so in spirit and in truth, that you'd encourage us through the preaching of your word, and that we would heed the warnings that you give us and not harden our necks to your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.